Elements, human-centered media storage. Elements.tv, the new centerpiece of your facility, which is so much more than just storage. Hey everyone, this is George Edelman, Editor-in-Chief at No Film School on the No Film School podcast. Today, our guest is legendary filmmaker Walter Murch. I read Walter Murch's book, Blink of an Eye, when I was very young, just getting interested in the theories and practices behind filmmaking and specifically editing. Um, I also read The Conversations which is uh, essentially an interview, an extended interview with him around the same time. Uh, And if you haven't read those two books, I highly, highly recommend them. They are two of the great filmmaking books. Of course, that's a long list that has many great filmmaking books, but those two stand out. He is such a unique figure in the filmmaking landscape. And his story, which he tells so graciously to us on the podcast going through you know every step of the way and and what what helped him develop his unique style and perspective but the hallmark of who he is and his books and this podcast and everything with him is how he's a renaissance man truly he's an intellectual who applies a great deal of thought and insight and analysis to the way he works he compares at one point in this interview uh, editing systems to types of pianos, like he's a pianist. And just that metaphor alone, I think, indicates the way he sees the whole art of, of what he does. And his, you know, his insights into what the process looks like and, and why we make the decisions we do when we're crafting a story through this medium uh, are priceless. I was honestly a little intimidated uh, going into it because, you know, I've met with, interviewed, spoken to countless filmmakers, but he's such a, um, look, he came up with Lucas and Coppola. He he, uh, innovated the way sound is recorded and mixed. Uh, he, He changed the game with the game changers of that generation. And we don't want to use that phrase like game changer so often that it becomes meaningless, but he really was a part of that. Uh, the Godfather, <laughs> I mean, uh, THX 1138 was, was kind of his idea too. He developed what it was. Uh, Apocalypse Now, he he cut that. Uh, he recut Touch of Evil going by Orson Welles' original notes. He uh, He just, he's such an important innovator. And such a great mind. And having him on this podcast was such a joy. And I just hope that it comes that his genius comes across in it. I hope that it opens everyone's mind to some different ways of doing things or approaching things and, and to his all his work, uh, not just what he's created as an editor and a director and a sound recorder and mixer, but also as a voice in the process of being a filmmaker because like i said at the open his books are amazing um i've talked too long because what you really want to hear is walter merch so here we go i again just want to thank you so much for doing this i have uh i've read your books i've read the books that interviewed you i've underlined lots of things in them i'm a i'm a big fan and uh i think as as, my, as our entire audience uh filmmakers of various stages and and era appreciate all your work and your innovation and stuff so i, oh, I mean there's a lot of thank things I, I i would want to talk to you about or ask you right. so i'm gonna try to uh find some focus but um, okay I, I think because, you know, no film school, we're a educational um, content is kind of our goal. And we try to help people understand, you know, how to make movies or become filmmakers without necessarily having film school access right. or access to all the tools. So 
um, one place I was like to start with people is just what really was the beginning for you in terms of interest and, and following this field and this career? I grew up in New York and my local cinema, the local theater was the Nemo Theater on 110th Street and Broadway. And, you know, I saw the usual amount of films there that a kid would see, mostly Saturday morning type things, with some exceptions. I, I think my mother had a, a crush on, uh, I'm trying to rem remember his name now, Stuart Granger, because uh, I, I, I remember being taken to a lot of Stuart Granger films back in the late 1940s. Those adventure movies, right? <laughs> adventure movies, right. Um, you know, and I, I liked them, as as you might like, as a, a seven-year-old would like, uh, you know, films about... Swashbucklers. Swashbuckling films about Africa yeah. or about, uh, you know, the French Revolution or wh whatever those films were that he was in. But I never thought that people made films. They were just things that were in the landscape of childhood. And so when my mother would say, what did you think of that film? It was kind of like asking me, what do you think of that cloud? Or what do you think of those mountains? <laughs> it was just, you know, and I'd, I'd say, say something, but that was the world that I lived in until I was probably 14, I guess. And uh, I saw The Seventh Seal by Ingmar Bergman on my own. I just kind of, I was intrigued by it. I, I, I don't even know how I heard about it, but I went to see it. And uh, I came out of the theater stunned because I realized somebody made that film. Wow. That this was, was So it was, there was something about that that had its fingerprints on it? As opposed yeah, to some of yeah, the other Yeah, it was such a personal, it was so filled with, I, I guess, Ingmar Bergman's personality that uh, it made me, the penny dropped, as they say. And I didn't follow the equation to its conclusion, which is somebody made that film. I'm somebody, I could make a film. <laughs> But it, so that idea was kind of latent and it only really began to emerge when I was in Paris studying French literature and history of art as a, a junior in college. This was 1963, 64, which was right at the height of the new wave. And Paris then was uniquely good at exhibition. They, they showed that was the original Cinematheque in Paris, and they changed films almost every day, and you could see historical films. This is all before, you know, DVDs or VHS or anything. So access to film history was, was unique in, in Paris at that time. And I guess that's where I got the bug. So when I got back to the United States, I thought, are there such things as film schools? Speaking of no film school. <laughs> there was a few, right? There were there the were first three. One. There were three. Yeah. There was NYU, there was UCLA and USC, two in California and one in uh, New York. You know, I since I grew up in New York, I didn't, I wanted to explore the world, so I didn't want to stay in New York. So I applied to uh, USC, and uh, I they admitted me with a scholarship, which was great because I couldn't afford have afforded it otherwise. And uh, that kind of launched me in what I'm doing to this day, I guess. And you were in what is sort of like that, like historic early class, right? There were the people you met at that time were, you know, George Lucas, Francis Ford Coppola, Caleb Deschanel, right? Among many, many others, all in that sort of time period, correct? That That's correct. Uh, you know, although at the time we had no knowledge of anything special, it was just a bunch of kids. Francis <laughs> was at UCLA. He, he was ahead of oh, us right, at the time. Right. 
he was about four years older than us. And uh, he was a legend already because he'd graduated from film school. He'd gotten a job with Roger Corman somehow. He had no family background in film. And uh, then he'd, he'd helped uh, put together a couple of horror films and a, a soft core porn film. And then wrote and directed a film, You're a Big Boy Now. And he handed that in as his master's thesis. So he, it was kind of a hat trick. And the idea that we could graduate from film school and then get a job in the film industry was a very thin prospect. So the fact that this guy, Francis Coppola, had achieved this was a, a North Star that kind of made it seem like it was possible. You have to remember back then being in film school was a mark against you. <laughs> Unless you had family connections with the industry, being a film student graduate meant that kind of like you were the graduate of West Point in, one, in a film from World War II. You know, you had book knowledge, but no knowledge of the trenches. And right. so they were very suspicious of you as a result, probably rightly so. <laughs> there was uh so did you, did any of you sort of confront that? Uh, I don't know if I want to call it animosity, but sort of uh, hesitance as you came out, as you started looking around. Yeah. After inevitably. Um, although, you know, there's, there were always some jobs that you could get, you know, sinking dailies or, uh, working on ADR or something, you know, the, you, you could scrounge things. And the hope was that eventually something would connect up and then that would lead to something better than, uh, just preparing ADR loops or something. Right. And when you, I'm, I'm curious when you got there and when you were in that, you know, in film school, um, was were the ideas of editing and sound recording and sound editing something that you were drawn to initially, or did you kind of discover that pa the passion for those parts of the process as you were there? Yes, I, I had discovered sound recording on my own back when I was 10, 11 years old in the early days of the tape recorder. A friend of mine uh, had one at home because his dad used it for business purposes. And I just uh, inexplicably glommed onto it. Uh, I knew instantly what it was and how to use it, you know, with that kind of intuition that 10-year-old people have about technology. And uh, I would go over to this kid's apartment and say, let's play with a tape recorder. And eventually, my passion was such that I convinced my parents that our family should get one too. And that way, we could... Uh, basically the equivalent of, you know, download files from the internet, meaning we could record music off the radio and then we wouldn't have to buy expensive records. Yeah. Think of the money we would save. Yeah. But I began to use the recorder for all kinds of little creative purposes, recording stuff uh, and then cutting it up and turning it around backwards, upside down. And How'd you cut it? How did you do? Well, how did you manipulate? It's just it's just quarter inch tape. You cut it with scissors, ah. and then you stick it together with scotch tape. And um, you know, so I was already editing yeah. stuff when I was eleven or twelve years old. Of course, never thinking that this I would wind up doing this for business for my life, but that's exactly what happened. So when I got and to that, USC, that... so when I got to USC. I, I had kind of put sound recording behind me. Oh, that was what I did when I was a kid. But when I got to USC, I realized, oh, yeah, they, they need sound too. Um, but I was still kind of naive about film sound. And if the teachers had said, okay, Walter, we know you used to be interested in sound, uh, but film sound is different. 
we record the sound at the time of shooting and it's matrixed into the image and we can't change it. So it's different than what you were doing. I would have shrugged my shoulders and thought, well, that's a shame, but I guess that's the way it is. Of course, that's not the way it is. Uh, you record <laughs> the sound separately and it's an, it's an involved process to sync it up in the first place, to keep it in sync and then to start to do creative things with it, just like I was doing when I was 10 or 11 years old. And when did you discover that that was what was happening with sound on a, on a movie, on a film? I guess in the first week. In school? You know, pretty quickly. <laughs> Early. <laughs> pretty quickly, yeah. Yeah, nobody else was interested in sound. Sound was something you had to take, but it was like taking organic chemistry or something for most of the film students. <laughs> they... they they just gritted their teeth and did it and were glad when it was done. But so I was one of the few people there who actually was interested in the process of learning about film sound. And you, uh, you know, the sound, the work you started doing, like, for example, THX 1138, you did some editing sound recording and editing but also some writing was that were you guys collaborating on it from the from the beginning in terms of what the 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 way the sound and picture would work together yes and no i uh, matthew robbins and i had written um the script for that we were thinking of doing it as a thesis film and then we got interested in something else and put it aside. And George Lucas, who was a student also, had heard about it. And he was looking around for a script to direct uh, for a... He'd somehow finagled his way into the Navy film program there. The, the Navy was sending students or sending sailors to USC cinema to learn how to shoot film kind of the audiovisual wow. department and they had why they had a lot of money relative you know it was government so they had unlimited uh -huh. money by our standards and access to the lookout mountain naval lab and all kinds of stuff and he somehow smelled this and and finagled his way into <laughs> that class and he took it over because None of the Navy guys were interested in story. They were just interested in uh, how do you focus a camera or, you know, what lens do you use and, you know, tech technical stuff. So George was looking around for a story to tell, and he took our uh, story and turned it into THX 1138. And then in the process of doing that, I came on and did uh, mix the sound for that film. Did you do some of the recording as well? It's it's a like unique sound like you know example I think in 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 movies of the way sound was used. It started doing things a little differently, right? Yeah, I mean we're talking about the student film now, right? Yeah, because he he later turned it into a feature film, but as a student film, right? Uh, uh, yeah, no, it it. Uh, I, I, he he came up, George came up with this idea, which I found intoxicating, of combining classical organ music, Bach, with uh, walkie-talkie sound, of, you know, people talking back and forth on ham radio. And that mixture of textures, I thought, was just fantastic. And that's something that we carried through when we did the feature film, THX. Yeah, so when it, when you moved, you know, and at this point, I guess you'd also done, you'd worked on The Rain People, which was another Francis Ford Coppola, right, project in, in the sound department. Right. And so right. when you guys started THX, the feature outside of the film school project, you were kind of expanding on some of those ideas a little bit and moving it in new directions. What kind of happened there creatively? Yeah, yeah. It it was. Uh, I mean, I I had as a eleven year old, twelve year old tape recordist. I had discovered and then fallen in love with the French music concrète school of music composition, and so I I decided that THX was an ideal uh, film 
to expand on this idea. And uh, basically that there doesn't necessarily have to be a direct linkage between what you're looking at and what you're listening to. They, they can touch occasionally like dancers, uh, but then there are moments when they can each go off and do their own pirouetting and the combination of those differences produces yet again something in the mind of the audience who's trying to bring these two things together to make some sense out of it. Yeah, it, it reminds me of uh, the way you describe it, of sort of like the idea of Hegelian dialectic, where there's a, there's a thesis, an antithesis, and then a synthesis. Right. Things kind of come together. Uh, and you've talked before right. about creating like the psychological aspect of creating the, the experience the audience is having through editing film. Was that sort of, right. it sounds like you were starting to do that with just the relationship between image and sound. Right. Uh, and when you, when you, you go, you went on American graffiti, the conversation, this was all sort of innovative in the world of, of sound. American graffiti certainly was the idea of some diegetic, non-diegetic and stuff. What, what was happening there? in your mind. Right. Well, uh, you left out the Godfather in there. Oh yeah. Right. I was, <laughs> that was a big uh, one, right? <laughs> yeah. I, I was not in any union at that time, so I couldn't get credit. Uh, so my credit on the film is, I don't know, post-production consultant or something, but I was the, basically the sound effects, the sound designer. We didn't call it that then, but the sound effects supervisor. I, I had experimented uh, on Rain People, even uh, in some of the student films too, but on Rain People and then THX with this concept of, of worldizing, uh, of drenching the sound in the acoustics of the implied space that you're looking at. And so you hear a lot of that in The Godfather, actually, if you listen to it. And then we really went to town with that idea on American Graffiti. Yeah, creating. I'm trying to think of how. Yeah, it's like creating a an auditory landscape. You know, is that how you would describe it? There's something. There, there's something to that that I think people people lock in on the visuals and don't necessarily understand what they're experiencing on the auditory level, right? Yeah, you're talking about kind of creating that world with the sound. Yeah, I mean, it, it's something that you know everybody who has a editing program on their laptop now can do with a, with a click. You, know, you just go to the reverb program and you select, you know, one of, you know, a couple of hundred different environments, bathroom, concert hall, cathedral, cave, yeah, uh, et cetera. But that wasn't available back then. So we had to handcraft it, so to speak, by make, taking a, a dry recording taking it out into the world and selecting a location and then playing that back on a speaker and recording the resultant sound on another tape recorder, making sure both were in sync and then transferring both of those to mag film and then playing with the balance of those two things in, in the final mix. Where did the, inspiration come from to start doing that? Like what was the, where was the, where in your, in like creatively, where did the idea come from to start trying to do that and create that? I, I think, uh, you know, it's pretty innate in me, so it's hard to access, but, uh, definitely I w when I was listening to some of the music concrete records in the mid fifties, there was one, section uh, where they, in you know, this was a school of, of music in Paris, and what they had done was taken some human voices and m made it sound like those voices were inside a bottle, inside a glass bottle. You know, just the, the reverb uh, sounded like that. And I remember thinking as a 12-year-old, how, how did they do that? How do you put a human voice inside a bottle? So I, I was predisposed to thinking about uh, acoustic space 
uh, you know, other than that, you know, my ears stick out compared to <laughs> other kids in my class. And I was teased for that. But it may be just that, that my ears, I hear the world slightly differently than people's who, whose ears don't stick out. Yeah. I mean, and it, I, I, I want to move ahead to the, you know, you continue to do so much work with sound in your career, but also picture editing became a part of, of so much of what you were doing. And I'm curious about the overlap, I guess, between the disciplines, because that sort of like, so, you know, Julia, Apocalypse Now, you know, you started being you know, editor, but you were also doing, I think they call you supervising editor on a, on the conversation. Um, what, what you went from doing all this sort of creative work in sound and innovative work, and then doing all like a lot of picture editing. Um, can you tell me a little bit about the transition? And, and, and what? Yeah. The, the first, uh, picture editing job that I had was the conversation back then there, there was not the term, associate editor, which there is now. And so I was mixing American graffiti and doing the sound on American graffiti while Francis was shooting the, the conversation. And so, you know, I during, during that time, I was only available to come to look at dailies in the evening. Uh, and so Richard Chu uh, was hired as another editor uh, but I was the, what we then called the supervising editor. So Richard would put things together and then he would show them to me and I would make comments about his work and, uh, we worked together on the film, but, you know, I was basically the, the editor and Richard in today's terminology, Richard was the associate editor. And so conversation was the first picture editing job I got. And it was because it was a film about a sound recordist and Francis was looking around for somebody to edit the film, you know, and I, I had edited picture on some commercials and a couple of documentaries prior to that. And, uh, he said, well, why don't you, you know, do the sound on the conversation, but why don't you edit the picture as well? Because, it's about a sound man and you're a sound man. So you will have a sensitivity to the issues in the film. And I thought, absolutely great idea. And it works so well. It's so, uh, it's so, it's so amazing. I, it's, it's amazing to have done those two projects concurrently because they are such important pieces in the, you know, the narrative of how cinema evolved. <laughs> There's such a point there where those things, the way those movies are cut and the way they sound take us into a new direction, really. Um, and the conversation, of course, the way it uses sound and the way he's playing music and, you know, all of that. It's, it's amazing. How did you approach picture editing? Because I know, you know, having read your books and other interviews, you talk about, you know, the blink of an eye, the concept there and the, um, the color coding system that you've used. But if you could, you know, talk a little bit about what your approach to editing the story and and telling the story in the edit, you know, and and how you how you do that and how you developed that. Um, hmm. Or I can rephrase it a little bit. It, make it, uh, <laughs> make no, it a little no, bit. No, it's it's uh, you. A, a fiction film has a script. It's very different than a documentary film, especially like Coup 53 uh, or Particle Fever, which are which don't have a script going in. You you are as an editor, you are writing the story as you put the images together. But with a film like The Conversation, there's a script, and you look at the dailies and you take notes and, and you decide. Um, what's the best shot for this moment and dive in and start to construct a scene using what you have uh, decided are the best visual moments for these particular beats in the scene and then look at it and decide what you want to do next, how you want to change it. 
So it's, you know, it's a, just a, on the one hand, very, very complicated process. On the other hand, it's kind of conceptually simple. You are operating out of intuition a lot of the time. On the other hand, you begin to develop, you begin to understand the language of this particular film, I think, which is the, the challenge if you approach film editing seriously and the script is a good script, it's, it's going to speak to the audience in a dialect, a rhythmic dialect, an editorial dialect that is unique to it. Just like, you know, every conductor decides on a rhythmic signature for the piece of music that he's about to conduct. Uh, the editor of a film does something similar to that. And of course, you take your cues from the material and from the script and from how it's shot and from the actor's performances. But your job is to make all of that cohere into a single uh, thing. Do you find it, it sounds like you find that rhythm as you get started. Do you ever find that you've gone a certain distance and then it needs to change. Like you discover things and recognize the rhythm may be different than you initially thought, or you adjust, you know, some um, things change in the edit or, do, or how does that unfold? Sure. No, it, you know, it's just like writing. You, you write a first draft and then you read it back. And a lot of the most characteristic essential parts of what you have written come during rewriting rather than during the the writing itself. The, a crude analogy is a Stone Age tribe where the guys go out and get the meat and then they bring it back and the women decide, what are we going to do with this to make dinner with? And so in a certain crude analogy sense, the, the first draft of a novel or the first draft of a screenplay or the first or the shooting is a kind of hunting for the meat. And then there's the, the second question, which is how are we going to cook this? How are we going to put it together uh, to make it taste good uh, and uh, bring out the best flavor out of this mastodon meat <laughs> with, with blueberries? What are we going to do with this? Well, we'll, well uh, that's what we'll do. So it's in a certain sense, I'm I'm a woman back at the campfire deciding what to do with the mastodon meat that Francis <laughs> caught on one of his expeditions. Right. It that's you know you can't run too far with that analogy, but it it goes some distance to explaining what's going on. Right. I I would make discoveries in the process. One one of the discoveries uh, about my own preferences in uh, editing is that I don't necessarily like uh, the process of cutting on matched action, which is sort of a, uh, you know, a ground zero of a certain style of editing, which is yeah. you, wait for the, you wait for the actor to make a movement and then you stop that movement halfway through and then take the next shot and find out where that movement is at its halfway point, make the splice, and then you've joined the two shots together. It's kind of a Lego kit approach <laughs> to film editing, but uh, I, I don't care for it. I use it when, when I have to, and some, some places it works great, but I don't, that's not my, uh, uh, my go-to uh, decision-making on where to cut a shot. Welcome to the future of remote editing. Imagine being a thousand kilometers away from your post-production suite. With Elements Satellite, you can easily access your editing workstation remotely with extreme responsiveness, unmatched frame rate, and ultimate security. Due to the immense demand for high bandwidth and low latency, video production is often too challenging for traditional remote access tools. Elements Satellite is the first remote access solution purpose built for the media entertainment industry. Now, editing can be done with superb quality from anywhere in the world without any restrictions. 
Arrange your free trial at elements.tv slash satellite today. It was also on that film where I figured out this idea of the, I guess you'd call it the click concept, uh, which is to look at a shot and decide I'm going to cut here. And I was editing that film on a, on a chem, a flatbed editor. Right. And when I pressed the stop button, I would reset the uh, frame counter to zero. And then I would run the shot again and try to duplicate the, the moment of the cut. And I would look at the shot and then hit cut, hit the stop button. And then I would look at the frame counter and see, oh, huh, that time I decided to cut three frames later than the previous time I did that. How did that feel? Did it feel three frames longer or did it feel better? And if you do that, you kind of narrow down quickly on, on this rhythmic pulse of this particular film. And, you know, I've continued to use that approach. Now, I, I, you know, there's, there's, I just use time code. But I, I, to identify the cut point out of a shot, I will run the shot and then hit stop and then do it again having noted the time code where I made that decision, run it again. And if I hit the exact same frame the second time, I know that that's probably a good cut because otherwise you couldn't do it any way other than that in a kind of musical sense. Uh, yeah. That, that, I was just going to say, it that, sounds like that relationship to music and the auditory experience, because you're trying to have an organic relationship to the, right. to the rhythm, right? Right. So, so the last thing I would never do is look at a shot, say, where a door is closing and, and scan, you know, frame by frame to find the frame where the door is closed and then mark that. Now, the audience never sees that film. Uh, they see it in, in real time, you know, 24 frames a second or whatever. And, uh, so you look at the shot and you can feel the cut point kind of rising up within you. Here it comes and boom, cut there. Okay, let me do it again. And huh, that time I was early. <laughs> yeah, it, it felt early. Okay, let me do it again. And so you keep doing it. And if, if you hit the same frame two or three times in a row, that is as much as you can certify that that's probably a good place to cut the shot because you're responding to it in a musical way. Can we go back to your the meat cooking metaphor? It's almost like you watch to see when that specific meat looks cooked instead of deciding that there's like an arbitrary when it hits this temperature, it's done. <laughs> there's something that I feel like yeah, is very re yeah. you're relating very much to the nature of the piece and asking it yeah, to tell I mean, you. Yeah, exactly. You're, you're, you're two, two things about that. I mean, to, to take the simple example of a door close, uh, the cut point of a door close is usually, not always, but usually the point where the door is closing. And at this point, it is inevitable that it will close, whatever that point is. Um, it's the moment where a plane is taking off and where, where, do, the, where do the wheels lift off the, uh, the runway. Um, you, you, unless you're making a point about closure, you, you don't necessarily want to cut when the door is already closed. So you, you somewhere as it's still moving, you would cut because the audience knows, okay, it's inevitably going to close at this point. And that way the, you keep kind of the pulse of the film going. Whereas if you wait until the door is closed, then you're you're drawing a line under there, which may be appropriate to a certain moment. But uh, you know, like the last shot in The Godfather, where the door closes on K, right? You you let the door close there because that's the that's the end yeah. of their relationship uh, uh, on a personal level.
but but other times it's like wasted motion right it would be like we don't yeah. need we've already know that door is closing is what you're saying and now right. we are on to the next right beat. and that's uh you know that dovetails with this whole idea of the blink you know if you watch people having a conversation and person a is talking and they reach a certain point in their dialogue where the idea has happened, mm -hmm. but they're still talking. <laughs> the person who's listening will blink because, the, okay, I get the idea of what he's saying. And the rest of what he's saying is kind of like a letter where it says, uh, in closing, yours sincerely, Walter Murch. <laughs> but basically the letter is over at the point where the blink happens. And uh, that's the point where you would cut away from the person who's talking to the person who's listening while the dialogue is still happening. And if you, if you choose, if an editor chooses to cut on a match action, going back to that idea and, and doesn't look at all these, this other idea, then they are sort of superimposing a structure on something organic, right? That could, that could unfold in a natural story way by just saying, well, we have yeah. to cut when he moves his arm instead of we cut when right. he finishes his point, that the point, the part of the point right. that matters. That's how you build the rhythm, right, of the story in your works. The, one of the advantages of not tying yourself to match action is that when you do tie yourself to match action, you're tying yourself to the rhythms that were present in the acting, in the directing at the time of shooting, which may not be what they need to be when you're putting the scene together because of where the scene is and what has happened previously. So... Uh, you know, that, you know, you're, you're kind of, you know, uh, what's the phrase in jazz, you know, riff till ready, you know, and right, okay, right. I'm going to have to wait until he moves his hand. Right, um, right, right. And then it's dead space sort of, right? And there's a, there's a potential dead space. There. Right. I mean, it depends on the needs of the scene at that point in the film, obviously, but uh, by freeing yourself of just a knee jerk, I have to cut on match action. You just open up all kinds of other rhythmic possibilities. The other problem I have with match action is that the, you know, the, the whole idea of editing film at the beginning of the 20th century was a weird one. They, they were very uncertain about whether we could do this or not. Right. And some of the very earliest films, Melies and uh, even Edwin Porter, didn't have cuts. They had little four or six frame dissolves at the point of the cut because they thought a cut would freak the audience out. Yeah. A hard cut. And so in a sense, match, cutting on matched action is a sort of a dissolve cut. Ah. That's the idea is that the, the, the cutting on the match action is, is you're sort of blowing smoke across the moment of the cut. I don't, I think it achieves just the opposite effect, actually. But I think that was the concept behind it, is that somehow this would allow the audience to uh, experience a transition between two different points of view without a traumatic uh, uh, impact. From today's point of view, you, you initiate an action and that attracts the eye of the audience. Oh, he's moving his hand. But then two or three frames into that action, you cut to a very different angle. And now the audience subconsciously says, well, what am I supposed to be looking at now? And you have to zero in on the, the, the focus of that shot. And, oh, it, it's, it's, there's his hand completing the action. So there's a move that is not completed, which has a kind of stutter. Then there's a cut to a different angle. And then that move completes. So there's a little flutter of, uh, uh, of a cut. Uh, it's, it's not a cut, it's a flutter cut. And, and under some circumstances, it's correct, I think. But in many circumstances, especially if you're just following it, because that's what you've been told to do. And this is how it's done. Then that gets back to a kind of Lego simplicity idea, Lego block cutting, which, uh, I think film should go beyond that. Right. Like you're like, you know, more towards talking about the early things like Kuleshov effect or that sort of montage of creating a sequence of ideas instead of creating an invisible 
right you know like moving fluidly like you wouldn't right. notice the cut you're trying to build a, a a concept right you know you you can again very crudely with crayons say that there were two streams of editing at the beginning of the 20th century there was the hollywood idea which was to do everything you could to mask the existence of the cut to pretend that it's all continuous action and matching action at least in their minds, was a way of achieving that. Um, and then there's the Soviet school, which is the Hegelian dialectic, the Kuleshov idea, which is you you do just the opposite. You create as bold a possible contrast between shots in order to create an idea in the mind of the audience that is the synthesis of those two visual concepts. Yeah. And... Here we are a hundred plus years later and editing film, the film construction is some kind of blend of those two concepts. I have an, a name for what I do, which is nodal editing, N node meaning like a knot in wood, in that each shot is like a growing organic uh, tree uh, that at a certain point, decides to put out a branch and the knot in the wood is that moment where the tree says, I think I'll put a branch out here. And that's uh, the way I think of, of constructing a scene is that it's like constructing the, the skeleton of a tree and each of the cuts is a branching point that eventually delivers you to the, the conclusion of the, of the scene. And what but you those branching points have to be organically true to the nature of what it is that you're uh, uh, dealing with. And that's why when you're going through, like you said, you sort of try to t keep checking to see if you find that same spot. Like you're checking to see if right. that spot is the right spot. Yeah. Right. Um, I'm curious because, you know, Coup 53 and talking about documentary work, which you've done, how uh, does this process... Um, the nodal editing idea transfer to that where you're dealing with, um, I mean, I can sort of extrapolate a little bit that it's very similar in, in some ways, but it's not scripted. It's not, you know, the meat coming back to the camp is very different, right? There's, there's a lot of meat coming back to the camp and maybe it isn't all created with the same, uh, on the same media. So how does the cooking go about in that situation and in, in, through your methodology? We had 532 hours of material on Coup 53, so there's, there's a lot of meat. <laughs> and, uh, you know, how do you... We, we didn't have that at the beginning of the film. Uh, when I joined the film, we had probably 30 hours. But over the course of the next four years, uh, by uh, amassing archive material and Tagi shooting interviews and other other things... It, it built up to that amount of film, which is more than twice what Apocalypse Now had. Um, so you are uh, wading through that tsunami of material, trying to figure out a story structure that will support all of this material and reveal it uh, in the strongest, most understandable, most emotionally engaging and intellectually uh, interesting way. So again, I mean, that's a writing process and that's yeah. where the, you know, any editor of a unscripted documentary should be credited with as one of the writers of the film. Right. You're crafting the story in a more, uh, from an origin place as in a different kind of way. Yeah. You know, there, there are a few scenes where there is uh, conventional, uh, you know, people in a room talking and doing things. And I would approach that very similar to the way we were just describing about how I put the conversation together or any of the other films that I worked on. Uh, but then there's a the larger concept of scenes that are not like that, wh what concepts are we trying to juxtapose that will reveal 
you know, they will ignite the story in the audience's mind in the correct way. Have you sort of, has your do- process with docs changed over the years or, or have you sort of consistently approached it the same way? You know, I worked on some USIA documentaries early on and some that, that kind of stuff. More than that, however, is that uh, I worked with Francis Coppola and his style of directing on Godfather, Apocalypse Now, Conversation. There are many scenes in there which were shot as if they were documentaries. Oh, really? So that the the conversation itself was shot with four or five cameras in in a real environment uh, in which 98% of the people you see were just people who happened to be in Union Square at that time. So there weren't any actors there and, and there were hidden cameras photographing this action, uh, telephoto lenses, etc. And when the dailies of that scene came in, I thought, you know, what have I taken on here? Because <laughs> the conversation was, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to remember now, but it was probably 60,000 feet of material at least. And uh, with no script notes for any of the cameras, just oh, you know, no. telephoto lens or wide angle oh, lens. No. How so did you sort? What, How did you begin to sort all of yeah, that? Yeah, well, I, I, I did a, a spreadsheet of each camera and each line of dialogue in the scene. And then I made an X where those two things interacted. Did this camera have this line of dialogue? And then if that line of dialogue was actually visually interesting as well as being covered, I would color it a certain color. And then I just had that spreadsheet up on the wall, and that allowed me to thread my way through the uh, that that huge amount of material. And the the attack on the, the the Valkyries section of Apocalypse was done exactly the same way, as was the wedding in The Godfather. I didn't edit The Godfather, but that he shot he directed the wedding just as if it was a real event that he was. You know, he, he was a wedding video guy. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, everyone had their role and their identity. And he would just let the cameras loose for 10 minutes. That That's the maximum you could get into a 35 millimeter camera. And then uh, Peter Zinner and Bill Reynolds, uh, Bill Bill Reynolds cut the, the, the wedding. You know, he just, I, I don't know his process, but it was probably very similar to what I just described with the conversation. Right. So you had to, uh, I mean, and that, that style is so immersive. I mean, those sequences are so immersive because of that, I think, right. Because you're, you're yeah. kind of jumping uh, around. You know, you, you, the advantage of those, that way of shooting is that there's a huge amount of, uh, in, in dairy terms, there's a huge amount of way, <laughs> uh, meaning, you know, this shot has one interesting thing that happens in it. Um, so there's a lot that you toss out. But the one thing that happens has a kind of magic to it because there is intention there, but it's intention that is grabbed on the run. And so it has an authenticity to it that when you put together something, uh, and I'm, I'm speaking out of school here, but you know, the Spielberg film, which is heavily storyboarded, th- these are all concepts that had been worked out shot by shot. And that's exactly the opposite way of uh, the way the Valkyries was approached. Carefully staged, right? That would, you know, the carefully yeah. staged versus the organically appearing moment. Right. 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 Um, you talk about how that, that informed your editing. You've, you've, that you've put to, you've cooked with the resources coming back to the camp from you know Francis Ford Coppola, George Lucas, and actually even Orson Welles, right? Because you recut Touch of Evil yeah. based on his notes, right? And I'm I'm really curious about that process and like what you learned in looking at his notes, but also uh, just having having worked with the material from these very these so many of these of these filmmakers, you know, if if you've 
seen certain similarities or, or, um, or if you just kind of try, like you said, to go along and find the organic branch spot, the knot, the nodes, the knots, as you said, each time, but, but just to be, to narrow in, like, what was it like going through his notes and how did you honor his intentions and stuff on touch of evil? His notes were written uh, 58 pages of notes uh, on from one screening that he was allowed to see what the studio had done to his film. He wasn't allowed to stop the film. Uh, so he just took notes on the run and then he stayed up all night and typed up 58 pages. And the other thing is that those notes were sent to his enemies, Ed Mole in particular, who hated Orson Welles, trying to somehow extract from them uh, a desire to honor the spirit of the film. He, he, at one point in the notes, he says, this is no longer my film, it's your film, but because I directed it, I acted in it, and I wrote it, I have certain inside knowledge that I think will help you to make your film a better film. Uh, so it's a very diplomatic. Yeah. If you study that letter from a, you know, a point of view of international diplomacy, <laughs> it's very, very astute because he doesn't get angry, uh, but he makes his points and he makes them in a way that they almost did what he wanted, but yeah. not really because they're a studio. Uh, so, so reading those notes, you really got a feel for what he wanted to happen. And he, he never talked about specific moments in terms of frames or anything. He just said, this needs to go quicker here. And he's leaving it up to the editor, uh, what to do, how to make it quicker. Um, so it's, uh, they're, they're, you know, you can, you can get these notes if you buy the Blu-ray of Touch of Evil. Yeah. The, the, I think it's the 40th anniversary edition. Uh, and they bundle in those notes and they're, they're, you, you really get a feel for what he wanted and what kind of person he was. And that informs your approach to everything that you then do. I, I slightly jokingly say that it's as if Orson came and handed me the notes and then said, okay, Walter, here they are. See what you can do. I'm going to go into the next room and take a nap. Wake me when you're done. <laughs> and uh, it took me about three weeks to do everything. And I was disappointed when I went into the next room and he wasn't there because uh. his presence was so strong throughout those three weeks because of the film, obviously, but also because of the notes. Did you feel like you were with him almost? That's such a yeah, yeah, great yeah. story. And uh, say, it reminds me, I, I think it's, did Robert Wise edit on Magnificent Ambersons, right? And and Orson Welles was aware. And, and uh, uh, Citizen Kane. Right. He was so, the editor of Citizen Kane. So he was another filmmaker who kind of had that experience of working with what Welles right. maybe had wanted, but but wasn't there to say. It seems like there's a fascinating... Well, he, uh, Orson was there all through Citizen right. Kane. Right, yeah. But yes. he was off uh, in Brazil making a documentary when the studio grabbed Am Ambersons and decided to uh, fix it. Yeah. And, uh, you know, no discredit to him, but... Uh, Robert Wise. Yeah, Robert Wise just, you know, he was being told by the studio what to do. Sure, yes, yes. And but Orson wasn't there to fight back, so that that's the tragedy of that film. Yeah, but it's amazing that we have that version of Touch of Evil. How I'm I'm so curious yeah. in your in your working with him from the other room experience, how did you did you do things like, you know, if he says something like your example, this needs to go quicker. How did you implement that? I mean, obviously the obvious thing would be like, oh, I cut it shorter, but but to honor the intent without knowing the specifics, you know. Yeah, well, I, you know, I, I do that all the time. <laughs> you know, English patient, 
English patient was four and a half hours long, first assembly. How do you cut two hours out of four and a half hours? You just, you know, you, you, my, I have two different approaches. One of them is the spaghetti sauce method, which is you, you put the film under a low heat and you stir it. <laughs> and basically you question everything. Well, maybe he doesn't have to say that line, or maybe he doesn't have to leave the room. We can just cut on the look or, you know, the u usual things. Uh, and so that's kind of the equivalent of diet and exercise. Uh. The film is too fat and you, you are a trainer and you take the film out onto the track and you watch its diet and you can cut about 30% out of a film with diet and exercise. You can't cut 50%. Yeah, 50% 50, 50 which is which is what we had to do on you know all of Anthony's films. Yeah. Uh, there needs to be surgery and that's where you have to make a bold uh, cut and say, you know, we don't need this scene. We don't even need this character in the film. And there, that's where, again, the editor is also becoming a writer of the story. And I imagine in those instances, there's a lot of trust, right, that needs to exist between you and the director. And, and do you ever disagree yep. on those? How do you work out that those kinds of surgeries when you're not on the same page? Um, Did those ever happen? <laughs> and you have to kind of come to yeah, an agreement? Um, you know, my, my rule of thumb, not that often. Um, it, it's really like a relationship between an actor and a director. Yeah. Uh, in the sense that the director has chosen me the way he chooses an actor. And if the director has chosen well, then the act, the director ha gives the actor a lot of trust. The, the director doesn't say, say the line, wait three seconds and then put the glass down and look two degrees to the left before you get up. You know, that's, that's not good direction. <laughs> uh, you, you allow the actor to have autonomy on those levels. And so that, there's a, a very similar relationship uh, in the sense that, oh, we need to cut this film, we need to cut this scene down, uh, do something and show it to me. So that's like saying to an actor, act the scene. So you do things and then you show it and most of the time, the director will say, good. Or, oh, that gives me another idea. Let's do this. Right. I've really appreciated all your time. Thank you for giving us so much. I have a couple more, and, and then I'll let you go if that's okay. I, you have directed a few times, written a few times, uh, returned to Oz, obviously. But I'm curious, you did a director, you have a director credit on an episode of, of the Clone Wars, which is the, a Star Wars thing. What what kind of drew you to doing right. that? And, and what, what made it worth of interest as another directing situation for you? Uh, curiosity. I was at Loose Ends after a project and this came up and it was local in the sense that it, it was just 20 minutes away from where I live, where we were doing the work. And uh, I'd never directed animation before, so I was curious about that. And uh, it was a scripted, I, I had no input on the script. I was directing a script using animated characters. And it, I, I was uh, running something that was like a, 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 a a, a creature uh, of Maya. It, it, it was a Maya-like program that I would rough out uh, on my own crudely and then, you know, picking camera angles and uh, other things. And then I would w work with six other animators who would flesh that out and add more detail to it. And then... I think I was on it for maybe 10 or 12 weeks, the whole process. And then that, when that was finalized and voices were, you know, final voices were added to it, it was sent to, I think, Singapore, where the, the final 
full animation was was done for it. And I, I had no input on that. That was part of the process. So it, it basically, I was a director of an episode of, of episodic TV, which is what this was. And sort of just an ex exploration of directing in the animated space with the new technology yeah. that, that is being used right. for that. Yeah. Um, yeah. I guess in the last thing I just wanted to ask you, you've, you've been editing across all the platforms. Like you were one of the first or maybe the first, right, on the Final Cut Pro to do a big feature. You did Flatbeds. You did Avid. Right. And you did premiere on this last one, right? What are your, right. do you find that the process is forced to change through each thing? Or do you find that you can maintain your system and your process and you just have to discover that with each tool? Yeah, I, I think, I think, I, I, I don't think the technology has a huge influence on, on the, the approach to the material, whether it's a moviola or a flatbed or avid or final cut, there it's probably the equivalent of a concert pianist choosing a Steinway or a Yamaha. Hmm. Now these are different, and if you're at the top end of what you do, those are very delicate things. And some pianists would say, I would never use a Yamaha. I have to have a Steinway. <laughs> right. I'm not that kind of pianist. Yeah. I, I know what my approach is to the material. And I find a way to tailor that, tailor the material, to tailor the technology to that approach, I guess. That's how to put it. But inevitably, you know, some things like the delicate fingering, the, the pianistic fingering are slightly different with each system but not really not that different fundamentally. Yeah, that's, uh, I love that answer. I, I can't thank you enough. It's been a treat to interview you and have you on. And I, I am a huge fan of you and your work. So thank you so much. Okay, thank you very much. Thanks everyone for listening. I don't know, I hope you got as much out of that as I did. I feel like I say that a lot, but with Walter Murch, uh, it's just so cool, right? Um, thanks to Walter Murch for doing this and for being such a, an amazing person and innovating this industry so much and, and being a part of making so many of the movies that I personally love and admire. Um, there are too many to mention. You're, you're going to forget one, as I have. Uh you know, we have a lot of cool stuff happening on this podcast. We have a lot of great guests. If you haven't listened to my interview with Jeff Cronenwith, who shot Fight Club along with a couple other David Fincher movies, he's a longtime collaborator of Fincher's, he offered some amazing insights into working with Fincher and how they developed their practice of moving the camera and what motivates that. And, you, you know, it's, it's, it's such a rare gem to get something like that. Uh, and he, we also have a great interview with the filmmakers behind Peanut Butter Falcon, which was a great indie film. The story behind how it was made is mind-blowingly phenomenal and miraculous. And you've got to listen to hear those guys tell it. Um, go over to the website and check out what's happening on nofilmschool.com. Follow us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, like the podcast, rate it, subscribe to it, comment on it, share it with your friends, and be sure to tell us what we're doing right or wrong or whatever. Email at ask at nofilmschool.com or editor at nofilmschool.com. Ask us questions for the podcast and be sure to check back and stay engaged in the community. And of course, Thank you so much for listening.